what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. On the Canada Public Health website, there are a series of graphics that show the wave of an epidemic that has hit the whole country. Each graphic is a line drawing of Canada with the provinces marked out and colored in with varying shades of purple. The darker the shade of purple, the worse that province, by population, has been hit by this epidemic. As you scroll through the years, 2016, 2017, you see the purple deepen and creep east. BC, Yukon, Alberta. It's not COVID-19, though COVID has compounded the issue. It's the opioid crisis. And in 2020, Saskatchewan, after years of staying in the comparatively safer lilac shade, has numbers that are going to turn it dark purple. Saskatchewan's already recorded the highest number of overdose deaths in a decade. Drug overdoses in Saskatchewan doubled between 2019 and 2020. A Saskatoon family doctor is warning that the rising wave of overdose deaths across province will likely continue this year. It's hard not to get frustrated and basically sound like I'm old man yelling at cloud when I talk about these issues, but the situation has rapidly deteriorated. We're seeing record number of overdoses, record number of overdose deaths. We're seeing limitations on services due to COVID, but, you know, even pre-COVID, we, we predicted that the overdose crisis was coming. This is Jason. My name is Jason Mercury. I'm the executive director at Prairie Harm Reduction. Prairie Harm Reduction is a nonprofit organization in Saskatoon. It's a sort of community center, a hub for services tailored for at-risk or vulnerable people. We serve people who are at risk of HIV and hepatitis C and and those that are at risk of overdosing. People living below the poverty line, people that have experienced a lot of trauma, people with chronic mental health issues. majority of our clientele are people of Indigenous ancestry. It's all the folks that society has left behind. Jason says the center is often people's last line of hope. At its most simple, it's a place where the hot coffee and the communal TV are always on. But they offer a ton of different services, all with no judgment and no strings attached. Prairie Harm Reduction connects people with counselors for mental health support, with nurses who test for COVID-19 and HIV, with social workers who work with families to navigate the foster care system. We offer eight support services. We do um, a drop-in center. We do community education, training for professionals in the helping sector, harm reduction training, how to work with people who use drugs. Jason is no stranger to addiction. He's worked with people using drugs for years, and he knew things were going to get worse. He could see the opioid crisis hitting other provinces, knowing Saskatchewan would have its turn eventually. So he tried to get ahead of it, Jason set out to help build Saskatchewan's first supervised consumption site to be housed at Prairie Harm Reduction so that if someone was going to use, which they were, and it led to an overdose, someone with medical training would be there to help. The nonprofit would need a lot to get a supervised consumption site off the ground. 
more medical staff, longer opening hours, even a better ventilation system and a separate room to accommodate smoke and fumes from people using drugs inside. And they did it. They pulled the space together. Health Canada approved the facility in 2019, and the province of Saskatchewan asked for an operating budget. But then, as overdose numbers climbed, and just as the site was about to be launched, things almost fell apart. It's really frustrating to see what's taking place and how many people have died as a result of government inaction. Everybody's passing the fucking buck. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. This season on the show, we've brought you stories from the front lines of Canada's twin crises of homelessness and addiction, both of which have been compounded by COVID-19. We've heard from Michel, who took us into the Montreal encampment, tent city where he was living before it was dismantled at the beginning of winter. We heard from Penny O'Radical, a musician and recovering addict who now has his own YouTube channel where he documents the realities of living on the streets of Hamilton, Ontario. Now, I want you to get to know Jason Mercury. He brings us another perspective, this one from Pleasant Hill, one of the roughest neighborhoods in the heart of Saskatoon. This is the story of one man and his determination to help launch and sustain a safe consumption site in Saskatoon and how it nearly didn't happen. Quick note, Jason swears a lot. He has a lot to swear about. His phrasing has been left intact in the version you're about to hear, but if you prefer, you can hear a clean cut on our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. Okay, Jason will take it from here. I split my time, uh, you know, growing up either in the bush or on the farm. People like to tell me I'm as Saskatchewan as it can get. My mom's uh, full Scottish, first-generation Canadian. My dad uh, is um, a mix as well. He's Métis and Dene. And I grew up uh, in La Ronge. It's a lot of rocks, a lot of muskeg. A lot of rivers, uh, narrow rivers, fast-moving rivers, big lakes. It's a town of about 5,000 people right on the lake. If you don't know what you're doing, it can be a really harsh landscape. Uh, but if you know what you're doing, it's, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned off, off of the land up there. It's beautiful up there. Tough town to grow up in, though. Like, tough town. There's a lot of uh, drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of fighting. It can be a rough place, especially for, you know, in the... In the 80s and 90s and 2000s for a, for a half-breed like myself. Growing up, there was a family that lived across the street from us, and they were mixed race, um, just like we were. Uh, in their case, their dad was white and the mom was native. Me and their, their kid at the time did not really get along too well. Had a number of scraps, and um, it was getting kind of serious. I was just at home one day, and uh, he banged on my door, and I thought we were going to fight. Like I thought he was just coming over across the street trying to pick a fight with me. So I got up, and he was really distraught. He said his mom was dying, and he didn't know what to do, and could they call an ambulance? And I guess they didn't really have a phone at the house. I looked out, and sure enough, there was his mom laying on the front lawn, you know, convulsing and going into some pretty serious overdosing. That kid was like 14, 15 at the time. And all that I saw in his eye was pure terror. 
And it wasn't even just like he was scared about his mom dying. You could just tell he would be lost without her. I called the ambulance and, you know, comfort him as best I could while we waited for the ambulance to come. When I was asking him why he came to my house, like a weird, I thought he'd be the last, I thought we'd be the last place he'd come. I guess we were like, he was banging on all the other doors and nobody else opened their door. They came and, you know, they were successful in reviving her and she didn't die. She lived and then she ended up working for us um, later on. We're friends, we text, we talk. We're doing a play with Gordon Tatusis, uh, Nehiel Theatre, their um, uh, indigenous theatre group in the city. Uh, we're doing a play based on her life uh, story because I think she has a really powerful, powerful life story where she came from, you know, life of active addiction to what she's doing now. For me, she's a leader in, you know, the in the addictions movement. She's She's somebody that I look up to. And I think other people should too. She's just, she's just the nicest person I've like. She's honestly like my, like a second mom. She's just a big sweetheart. Often when I think back on how people treat people living with addictions, they always look at people at that moment when they're convulsing and overdosing on their lawn and think, you know, this person deserves to die. They don't think this person's going to get through this. And when they get on the other side of this, they're going to be doing some amazing things and helping heal the community. And so that overdose stuck stuck with me. And anytime I respond to an overdose or think of somebody overdosing or hear about somebody dying from a fucking overdose, I think that's somebody that if we, if we took the time and energy and effort, uh, you know, and help them heal, they could be doing some amazing things with their life. Every time I hear about somebody dying, I just think that that's a fucking failure on society. That's a policy decision. It doesn't need to be that way. After that, I became very um, jaded with the world because you see, before when you see discrimination and stuff, you just kind of, yeah, laugh, take it. But it really started to burn with me. And I, I did not exist well in society for a couple of years after that because I just saw all these injustices and inequities and this blind acceptance that these are the way things are. residential school effects are alive and well in my family you know I had family members that struggled with the uh, with addiction and I was no different than that a lot of um, anxiety and I had a lot of uh, mental health issues alcohol was a was a good um, motivator for me to not um, you know self-harm um, made me feel good made me feel like I belong gave me a place in society Barely past high school, uh, I was more concerned about um, paying rent and basketball, to be honest. My mom, who is like the nicest, most soft-spoken lady ever, uh, basically read me the riot act and told me I needed to get into school because um, she could see where I was potentially going to go if I didn't. I got in, and I think it was probably because I was doing a lot of extra cur. I was really doing extra Kirk because I needed a place that would keep me warm and also um, potentially feed me. <laughs> My basketball coach, I think, took me out for food pretty much after every practice.
applied for post-secondary, I got in at the NORTEP program. The program up there is education-related. Then I moved down uh, to Saskatoon in about 2004. I could transfer to a school down here, to the U of S down here, and, and um, live with my brother. When I moved to Saskatoon, the Starlight Tours were coming about. Stone Child Inquiry came out around that time, and what was said around, you know, the Indigenous circles, so to speak, was if you get into a car with the cops, they're going to drive you to the outskirts of the city and leave you for dead. And so, you know, I was terrified of the police when I first came down here. It was just kind of a scary time to be Indigenous in, in Saskatoon. And I think it's hilarious now that I'm, I work with the police on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that Saskatoon Police Service is perfect by any stretch, but I think like the time that they were when those, those things were going on to, you know, where we are now, it, it's it's definitely night and day. And the way we're dealing with the addictions crisis, you know, the Saskatoon Police Service was one of the first organizations to endorse the consumption site. Now we're looking at Regina Police Services advocating for harm reduction sites. I think I think uh, cops on the front line are sick of picking up bodies. After I graduated, I worked in mental health for another three years and then eventually went over to Prairie Harm Reduction. I was just waiting for the right opportunity to come around. A friend of mine, Erin, she was working at the organization at the time. She took me out for a drink and told me that she thought I'd be a good fit. And I went into that interview and I just said, I'm just going to be as honest as possible. And they either love me or hate me. And I got the job. Maybe a year, year and a half into work, I made the choice that I didn't want to drink anymore. And thought, you know what, if... Um, if I'm going to be as good as I think I can be at this, I need to I need to cut the shit out of my life. I've been at the agency about eight years. So I think if you asked any of my teachers from back then that I'm like I write for a living now, basically, you know, I think they would have they would have laughed at you if they would if you would have told them that when I was growing up that I was going to be a grant writer. Like I barely got into post secondary. I'm dyslexic. I have dysgraphia. I have ADD. You know, but. Here we are. I don't think we're doing anything special, to be honest. I think we're just literally providing, like, a space that people can, like, use a public washroom at. Like, that goes a long way. They can get a cup of coffee. They could... They could get connected with income services. They could apply for jobs. They could use their phone to call their family. The big thing that we're finding people always want is, you know, a place where they feel welcome, a, place, a sense of community. We're just trying to provide services as best we can and uh, that sense of support, that sense of love, that sense of compassion. It's not, it's not always easy, but, you know, it's, it's what we're there to do. Casey here. Coming up, part two, Esther's story. Jason will be right back. 
From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Esther was a, Esther was a client... You know, she came in and pretty early on on me working at Prairie Harm, I got told she was difficult to work with. And anyway, she came in and she didn't really want to talk to anybody. And because I'm a male and, you know, uh, working with vulnerable women, you have to be extra cautious. And so um, I didn't try to push anything, but she seemed to take a shine into me. <laughs> Esther was tiny. So like, it was just like the smallest little human. And one time I saw her get angry at somebody and take a swing at them. And you would have thought that woman was seven feet tall. Like she had, she had some fight in her, you know, and at the same time, uh, she had like the most adorable giggle. She would, uh, pick flowers and bring them to the drop-in center and, you know, put them in a vase. Oh, I picked this for you guys. She was just the kind, most kind-hearted person. Like I'm, I, I have a notoriously dirty vehicle. And when I did outreach, it was like 10 times worse. Like I just lived out of my car, basically driving people to and from appointments, picking them up, talking to them. Anytime she was in my car, she would uh, pick up all my, um, she would pick up all the uh, cans and garbage in my car uh, to take the cans to recycling. And then she would say, you're going to pay me 20 bucks. <laughs> and, uh, cause I cleaned up your car. Your wife will appreciate it. She'd always say stuff like that. And she just, she just kind of like inserted herself in your, in your life in the best way possible. I feel like my job is to break down and get behind people's walls and really help them open them up. And I feel like she really did that for me. We slowly built up a relationship and it turned out that, you know, she was, she was a working woman. She was doing what everybody does, survival sex trade. And so, um, you know, she needed to pay some bills. She often had run-ins with the law and, and so we, but she still needed to make a living. And so what do you do when you need to make a living and nobody will hire you? And so we gave her a job. And so she worked in our drop-in center for a number of years. And you just saw what a steady income and a place that treated her with respect. And, you know, she was always timely. She worked really hard. She had this amazing laugh. And it just made you feel, it just made you feel so good. You know, and I'm, I'm a grumpy guy, even, you know, like I've always been kind of a grumpy guy. And so she'd always say, you're such a grump. You're such a grump. And she tried to cheer me up all the time. And so we, we grew pretty tight. She was doing really well over after a number of years and she got in her own apartment and she had stopped hooking. This was about the time that I got, uh, I was an executive director, but I was associate director. So I, I got made and we were dealing with a bunch of stuff internally at the agency, HR issues and stuff like that. I was still primarily working on the front lines, but I had to do some HR stuff. We had this issue that, uh, HR issue and internal issue that was taking up a lot of my time. I had a call on a Tuesday that was her partner saying, you really need to come talk to Esther. Uh, I said, okay, I'll, I'll get to it as soon as I can, but I'm, you know, I'm busy right now. So I put down the phone and I was dealing with this internal stuff. Yeah, I didn't get out there that day. I got a call the next day saying, you really need to come out and talk to Esther. The call on the third day was uh, Esther's dead. I found out that, um, you know, she went to the emergency room. She got turned away from service when you use drugs and it's known they use drugs and you have interactions with they make a mark in your medical records that say you're a drug user and that you're drug seeking 
I was the guy who she would go to to solve all of her problems. And so she said, call Jason, he'll take care of this. Uh, I didn't go to her. And then she had to go back to the emergency room the next day. Uh, and then when she got denied that second time, she uh, she couldn't even walk. They actually, her partner had to come carry her home because she couldn't walk. She only lived three fucking blocks from the emergency room. That gives you an idea of how much pain she was in. Um, so she went home and then she said, uh, call Jason. And once again, I didn't get to it because I was trying to deal with all this other shit. And then um, uh, she couldn't go back the third night because she knew she'd be denied again for pain-seeking, medication-seeking. And uh, she she died on her on her living room floor. She had an ulcer that was bleeding internally and causing her stomach to swell. So she actually just bled out internally on her living room floor. You know that one that stings. That's gonna be that's burned on your soul when you go to see your maker. That's the type of shit that they're gonna bring up. Yeah, she was just. She was just special. She like, like I often think about Esther. Like she's, yeah, it's hard not to. Doesn't sit well with me. It's a person I loved and cared about, and I dropped the ball, and as a result, they fucking died. like to say Esther's the only one, but by the time I became executive director, I had 120 clients die. Like, it's a lot. I have a, I have this big ass manila envelope that's just stuffed with funeral cards, like stuffed. It could wrap around my office walls twice over. When it comes to the Esther situation, I just get so fucking angry. Like, like I, I used to, when I needed self-care, I used to go to the boxing gym and beat the fuck out of other people. I'm getting to the point where I don't want to fucking go to boxing class anymore. I don't want to go to fucking sparring. I'm going to fucking take it out on the people that are controlling these situations. It should be their fucking jobs on the line, their lives on the line, not our fucking people's lives on the line. Because they were a fucking residential school survivor or a foster care survivor. Like that's, that's the, the addictions crisis is fucking being fueled right now from the foster care system. People think this shit is, is done or overblown. You have no fucking idea what it does to you when you get removed from your family at age three. And you fucking cruise around to 12 different foster homes by the time you're 13. But as soon as, as soon as that kid who was fucking raped every day becomes 18, the tone changes to get a job, you fucking bum. Most of our clientele have been through the foster care system. When they turn 18, it's kind of like good luck with your life. A lot of times, you know, their complete social supports have been pulled out from underneath them when they're done with the foster care system and then they get kicked out into homelessness. Then a lot of our folks have been 
had histories of being sexually abused, uh, physically abused, a lot of trauma there, not to mention the trauma that comes when you're displaced from your family. We're seeing the results on the other end, which is people trying to suppress the trauma as best they can, and so they do that through, through drug use because drugs are going to take the edge off them, make them feel a little bit better about themselves in that moment, and then hopefully they're not overdosing and dying and we can get them connected with some mental health supports. We got asked in 2019 to put a budget forward to the province to request for the safe consumption site. We requested $1.3 million. That was for a 24-7, 365 days a year a safe consumption site. People have no place to go. They don't have a place to engage. They don't have a place to use drugs in. Plus, drugs are not a 9-to-5 habit. We put in for the $1.3 million. The majority of that was for staff. We wanted to hire uh, two paramedics around the clock uh, for the consumption room and then two support staff. We could have put in for doctors or nurses, and they're way more expensive than paramedics and social workers. But, you know, paramedics, their skill sets suited to preventing people from dying, which is exactly what we're trying to do there. We thought we put a very reasonable budget for a 24-7 medical facility that was going to be able to handle 500 people a day. This is CBC News. The people organizing the setup of a safe consumption site in Saskatoon say they are continuing their plans to open. Planners had wanted a site open 24 hours a day year-round, but they couldn't get provincial funding. Asking for $1.3 million to open the site, but it was left out of yesterday's provincial budget. $1.3 million was the asking price. The province said no. We were denied. We were hoping and fully expecting government to fund us, and they didn't. They gave us money for two caseworkers, which is great. Our caseworkers are very much overloaded. They're dealing with caseloads of 250 to 300 people, but really the consumption site is still needed. We started seeing people overdosing more and more. After just seven months this year, Saskatchewan's already recorded the highest number of overdose deaths in a decade. Paramedics in our city are dealing with a huge increase in overdose calls. Pandemic within a pandemic. This coroner says more than 320 people have died or are suspected to have died from... Street drugs, including fentanyl. And drug is now fairly easy to find in Saskatchewan. The number of deaths from drug overdoses in Saskatchewan doubled between 2019 and 2020. The irony is we should have been opening right when overdose deaths were skyrocketing. We couldn't open because we didn't have money to staff the fucking consumption site. So people were using drugs behind our building and we had somebody overdose. Uh, You know, we had to issue nine shots of naloxone in that person just to get their fucking pulse back to the point where they were breathing. I can tell you it doesn't feel any better when you respond to an overdose and revive somebody. Feelings almost identical from when you, somebody lives and when somebody dies for the for the person responding. It's a massive adrenaline dump, you know, and then you're, you're just frustrated because you know it doesn't have to be that way. That basically steeled my resolve and our staff's resolve having to respond to the multiple overdoses that we've seen. At that point, we changed our tone uh, pretty drastically uh, in the summertime because I just thought, this is fucking crazy. We're letting him be impolite and, you know, not wanting to ruffle some feathers. And as a result, people are dying. That fucking approach is done. I spent, I don't know, a number of months. We were trying to figure out, can we do this? Can we not? Good thing we got a great board of directors who believed in us. 
we put together a fundraising plan. We started with a clothing store because a bunch of tattoo artists were out of work. So we hired a number of tattoo artists. At the same time, businesses started stepping up. Bakeries, clothing stores, bars, drag shows. We did our AIDS walk. We were doing anything and everything we could to fundraise for it. We did our second line of clothing where we sold out within six hours. We've had restaurants come on board in droves. And it's crazy because COVID has hammered the restaurant industry. Yet we have business owners, small business owners coming up to us and giving a chunk of their very limited profits to our agency so that we can fucking stop people from dying. The one awesome thing that's happened is like businesses often will just email and say, hey, we're running a fundraiser for you guys. They're just like, we're going to raise money for you guys and help you get your feet off the ground. The province's first supervised injection site opened its doors today in Saskatoon. Prairie Harm Reduction runs the site on 20th Street West. It's not exactly what planners had in mind, but... They say it's a start. Mercury says the record-breaking number of overdoses in the province this year is a call to action. Now, this place may not be perfect, but he says somebody had to do something. We have a giant naloxone kit painted on the outside of our building, and then we have our sign above that that's really bright and colorful. Overdose awareness symbols painted on them and big signs says prairie harm reduction uh, with our new logo. And so it's pretty, pretty easy to spot us. Getting the consumption site off the ground, I put in, there was multiple times where I was working 16 hour days, like for a month. And I'm not talking like five days a week, I'm talking like seven days a week. Like it's go time. I was waking up at six, going to the gym for an hour, going straight into work, eating properly, exercising, you know, but you can only maintain that, that fucking pace for so long. Um, you know, and now I think this this year has been rough. Like we, you know, the one thing that's been nice this year is seeing how the communities rallied behind us. Everybody knows where we are. They know what we offer. Like this morning when we opened up, we had a lineup waiting to get inside. When we let, when you, you just saw that we had people waiting outside to get in. Normally they would be in, but with COVID restrictions, you know, it's it's fairly tough. We can have up to eight people in our consumption site at one time, but because we only have one medical professional, uh, we only have one, uh, four. So. Uh, if we had more money, we could have more staff, uh, but we simply do not have that at this point. So we're hopeful that we're going to get government funding, uh, and then we could also expand hours because our hours are fairly limited. Consumption site drop-in center only open 10 to 4, Monday to Friday. We want to be open seven days a week. We'd prefer like 24 hours a day, but we'd settle for midnight at this point. Biggest complaint we get with the consumption site is, aren't you open later? We're constantly, non-stop, trying to fundraise so that we can not only implement the safe consumption site, but we'd like to expand hours. And we're not going to get caught with our pants down again with the government not funding us. Like, we need to be ready to go. People can legally smoke, inject, uh, eat, or snort their drugs in our facility. It's a pretty simple process. We just ask them uh, what they think they're using, how they plan on using it, some mode of ingestion, um, whether they're injecting, snorting, uh, eating or smoking. Uh, you see that we have at each of the booths we have mirrors set up so that allows people to see what's behind them. We don't want to be sneaking up on people. It also allows our paramedic to kind of keep an eye on them if they're on the nod. You can hear the fans in the background uh, so that's because we have pretty serious air exchanger on our building and so it just ensures indoor air quality. And then we have our smoking room here so this is 
what makes us fairly unique compared to the rest of Canada. We have a booth here that's enclosed. People can smoke their drugs in here. Like I said, we're the only legal, safer smoking space in the country. We would love to have government oversight in our facility. And we want it to be the province because we're not BC, we're not Ontario. You know, we don't really have that right now. We, we're doing it off of a fundraising budget. When we're a community-based organization and we're viewed as the leaders on the addictions crisis with our fundraising budget, that's absolutely unacceptable. The health authority has been pretty much silent on this issue, which further promotes the stigma that these people are expendable. Health should be led from the health authority. But if they're not, we're going to step in. And that's where we're kind of at now. But I'm hopeful in the next couple of years, it's going to really shift. What's happening in not just Saskatchewan, like across Canada, is simply not acceptable. Uh, and a lot of finger pointing. Feds point to the province. Province points to the feds. Everybody points to municipalities. Who's responsible for the fucking addictions crisis? Who? Nobody's stepping up, saying that I'm going to own this, I'm going to make this right, I'm going to change things so that they're better for everybody. Everybody's passing the fucking buck. We are done asking, we are now telling what needs to happen. We're often told, shut up, sit down, and that time's fucking done. Jason Mercury. His story was produced by Kendall Latimer and edited by Allison Cook. To read more about prairie harm reduction and Jason, head to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry O'KK, Tanara McLean, Veronica Simmons, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.